What we do here is go back, 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 back. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's, where I get a chance to sit down with fascinating folks from all walks of life to talk to them about where they are now, how they got there, and some of the challenges they've had to overcome along the way. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to what is most likely episode five of 10,000 No's, possibly episode 10. I will explain that in a few minutes. Uh, If you're looking to just get to the interview with Doug Emmett, um, feel free to skip past these first probably three to five minutes. Um, I've got to do a little little riff here, but um, I am not offended if you just want to go to the interview. Um, So this is my 10th interview I'm about to have with Doug Emmett. He is a DP. Some of you who are not in the film business ask, what is a DP? It is a director of photography, otherwise known as a cinematographer. And rather than me explain what that is and how that works and how they think, I'm going to have Doug do it when he gets here. Uh, I think you're going to love him. But um, it's the 10th interview, but it may be released as episode five because Doug is in the middle of uh, working on, well, he already worked on it, but uh, room 104 on HBO brought to you by the Duplass Brothers is airing right now. So it might be good business for this podcast to be releasing it now while people are interested in uh, the goings on at that show. That is a reason for uh, mixing and matching. Um, the reason I wanted to riff here for a second uh, is many fold. The first reason is really I just wanted to express my gratitude to uh, so many people who have reached out to me um, and thanked me for this, which is really, really exciting and cool for me because uh, I hemmed and hawed on getting it done and I just finally pulled the trigger and some of the responses have been kind of exactly what I was hoping for. Uh, Here's one. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to call people out, but a friend uh, texted me last night, said, just watched Gleason. Now, for those of you that don't know, my first interview with Kimmy Culp, she was the producer of the documentary Gleason, and I kind of gushed about it. Uh, He says, just watched Gleason. Wow, I cried like a baby three or four times. And then in parentheses, he writes six during that movie. Thanks for recommending it. It truly touches on father, son, husband, wife, strength, faith, etc. I guess I don't need to tell you that. Just thanks. You owe me a box of tissue. Hope you're good. Um, That was from a guy who um, is a total alpha dog, man's man, um, not someone you want to tell. He was crying like a baby because he probably you know, beat you to a pulp. Um, and that's kind of my, I, I was so excited to get that text and, uh, really, you know, just excited to see that they could have that kind of response. Uh, another one was from an actor friend of mine who, uh, seemed really excited. I didn't even know he, he said, I just listened to your podcast, the Siri episode. I love it, man. You know, how are you recording them? How'd you get it started? I'm so intrigued. I'll definitely spread the word. Um, you know, and he said something that which made me feel good, which was, I love that you put it all out there in your podcast, not trying to act like you're a pro already, just interested in talking to people about their stories. It's cool. 
And I bring these up not as a brag. I bring them up to just say, whoever's listening, if you have something that you're kind of, you've been like mulling it over and thinking like, I want to do this thing, but it's a bit of a risk, or I might look dumb if I do it, if I try to, you know, put myself out there. Um, It's kind of just, I'm just trying to tell you and I'm telling myself, just do it. I mean, who cares? So maybe people make fun of you. Um, Maybe it's not as good as you thought it was, which is another reason for me riffing right now. I listened to the Kimmy episode after I had put it out in the world. I just put it out there because I didn't want to hold myself back. And I literally, my stomach turned and I was cringing, listening to myself. One, just talk too much. Two, just cut her off all over the place. And three, use the word awesome about 96 times in an hour. Uh, It's like I had no access to any other adjectives. So I just saying, oh, that's awesome. And it sounded like, you know, a total idiot. Um, And also the, my language, which I kind of went with pride throwing F-bombs. And if you listen to the first couple, I'm really doing it. And my dad um, said early on, you know, I think you're going to offend some people. They'll turn you off. And I said, I don't care. I just want the people who love me are going to love me. And I don't care about the others. And, um, and then I listened and I thought he was right. And I kind of feel like I was dumbing myself down with language and with just you know, kind of not using the vocabulary that, uh, that I could use. So, uh, I almost literally threw in the towel and said, I got to pull the plug on this thing, but, um, it was already out in the world. So it was too late. So I just said, okay, you got to live with it. Kimmy at least is excellent and articulate and the interview is great because of her. Uh, I cringe at me, but it is what it is moving on. And hopefully you'll notice that Hopefully I'm getting better with each interview and, you know, it gets better and better. Um, But that's my encouragement to you is just go out there and do that thing that you are thinking you want to do, but you're afraid it might not hit because people kind of what happens is they come out of the woodwork to help you in ways that you can't see from a standstill. So you kind of can't figure out all of your problems until you're actually in the process of doing it. And it's just going to be trial and error. And yeah, you are going to look like an idiot. Sometimes I've looked like an idiot and I've only released four episodes. Three of them were interviews and I cringed on the first one. Uh, I'll cringe again, I'm sure. But, um, you know, take the good with the bad. Um, That's it. I hope you are digging this. If you are digging it, um, please go to iTunes and rate it. Give it a good rating. I think it's like five stars is the best you could do. Uh, you can put in, um, you know, some kind of verbal review. I'm sure that's a pain to do. I've not done that myself. Um, but if you feel moved to do it, it's greatly appreciated. If you like what you're hearing, um, please subscribe so you get them. They'll just automatically download to your phone every time they're released, which at this point, the release schedule is to do it every Friday, the new episode will get released. Um, For the foreseeable future, that's what I'm planning on doing. And just kind of, you know, spread the word if you like it. And this is a, you know, this is a a passion project that I'm funding myself out of my own pocket. And I don't mind doing that if uh, if it's having a good effect and um, people feel like they're getting something out of it. And and the other thing is... um, 
I just got the domain name uh, 10,000nose.com. I had to actually uh, bargain for it because somebody owned it. I had to buy it from them, which was a pain. Uh, but it's 10000nos.com. There's nothing there at this point. Um, but hopefully soon I'll have a website there and I'll have an email where you can, you know, maybe I'll just do it as podcast at 10,000nos.com. And people can, you know, write into me and request to, for me to interview someone or, you know, hey, could you please do this? Could you not do that? And, you know, I'll see what I can do to accommodate if I like the idea. That's it. Thanks for listening. And I hope you uh, enjoy my interview with Doug Emmett, director of photography and director. Okay, here he is, people. Dougie Fresh. I'm here. <laughs> was, um, yeah, so that's the was, other weird thing is that it's like I'm talking to an imaginary audience here. So you can. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, Am I supposed to imagine you with your clothes off? <laughs> do you mind if I just do that? Totally. Yeah. That's well, what I, I was going to say on my way over here. I was a little bit nervous because I, I realized, I mean, partly the reason why I like to work behind the camera is because I, I hate the sound of my own voice. Yeah. So as I'm driving over here, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm like, what, who do I want to sound like? You know, I, know. I went through the list of podcasts, you know, there's like 538 Nate Silver's podcast. There's, you know, this American life and radio lab. And I listened to a lot. And then I was like, I like Michael Barbaro's voice from the daily. Do you know that I show? Know that one, New York no. times. It's a 20 minute, five days a week podcast. Interesting stories that we should all know and talk about. I think in our world. Um, but Michael Barbaro has a great radio voice. That's cool. That's actually, yeah. that should be like my first question to everybody is like, like what, who do you what want podcasts do you listen to? Yeah. yeah. Who do you want to sound like? Well, I was just, I did a little intro here that when you hear the final thing, you, you'll hear me, I do a little riff for, I think it turned out to be seven minutes. I told them it would probably be three to five, which is kind of par <laughs> for the course with me. But, um, I was, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, don't, I lost my train of thought. Scratch that. Cut. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> so let's talk let's about again. Um, let's talk about what a DP is, and you know, p- people that are not in the business go cinematographer, DP. Is that the same thing? What do you yeah. do? What, how would you describe? I think a lot of people assume that directors just do everything, and and in many ways they do, but they have to farm out some of the responsibility to other people, crew members. So you have costume designers, your production designers, your cinematographer, your editor. Um, so a director of photography or a cinematographer, it's interchangeable, um, is really responsible for taking the director's vision um, in terms of camera work and lighting and the, the craft of storytelling with a camera and manifesting that and making that happen for the director. So, um, you know, it begins in pre-production, begins with the script and the director and I will sit down and we'll read the script together, break it down scene by scene mostly talking about mood and tone and what is the point of the story and what are you trying to tell? And if I can get into the director's mind a little bit, then I, I start to, you know, and, and we, and we trade references and I get a sense of oh, the director likes things really dark, really moody, or maybe this is a comedy and they, and they don't want the camera to do a lot and they don't want to distract from the actors. Um, and if the important thing is just photographing the actors, well then my job is to put the camera in the right place and, choose the right lens for that scene. And, you know, maybe we add some camera movement, maybe we add a lighting effect, whatever it is that helps convey the mood and the tone of that scene. And then my job is also to make sure that it's 
um, that each scene is cohesive and throughout the course of an hour and a half long film that the film should look like one piece of work. Right. Um, so managing the look of the movie, you know, over the course of maybe it's a 30 day shoot. Um, so, so the job is really to just take the director's ideas and put them on film or in today's day and age. On yeah. I like the way video you put it. Or, or I was going to add like, you know, keep the film consistent, the look of it consistent or intentionally have like in traffic where they have those three different worlds. Yeah. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, the Benicio section in Mexico is kind of blown out and really overexposed and, and gritty. And over, yeah. yeah. And then there's That's like the other example. one with like uh, Michael Douglas, where it's, it's kind of like his world is kind of gray and, yeah. and, and kind of, Colorless and blue. And, and yeah, and he's yeah. got the whole story with his daughter. That's there. a perfect example. That movie's a great example because it's a very literal example for what we do. Yeah. You know, how you're trying to create worlds that convey um, a feeling. Yeah. So, and that's something yeah. that listeners may not even think about or ever have been aware of before. You know, we are because we talk about it. this is what we do. But, um, people may not even be aware of a feeling they're getting when they're watching a movie. But I always think the brilliance of how they shot traffic in particular, that story is kind of sprawling and it's got those very distinct storylines that all crash and collide and interweave. And part of it is just logistically keeping people straight, like, oh, okay, we're in the drugs are section. Oh, now we're in the undercover guy down here, you know, and it's kind of like a way to keep it simple in, in, yeah. in a certain way, the storytelling, make it, you know, straightforward. And also each world is distinctive based on what they need out of that world. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I enjoy, I enjoy the challenge of having a director say like, look, I, I want this movie to look like traffic, but it's a comedy you know, and you're like, okay, well, I don't really, I can't rip off traffic and it can't just be a boring looking movie either. It's so like, how do you, how do you do that? And so every movie is totally different. Yeah. And so the challenge you're, as a cinematographer, you're like, every day you go into the office, it's a completely new challenge and a completely new day. Um, and you use your previous previous experience to build on that but um you're sort of just like rolling the dice and you see what sticks you it's know, really cool even as you well you're you're really a great it's a collaboration and and in a way it's kind of like what we're doing here where i'm interviewing people and going like how do i get in the mind of doug emmett so i could see the world how he sees it and kind of it sounds like that's what you're doing in pre-production with your directors yeah. how do i get in and see the world the way they want it represented and then kind of carry that out logistically for the visuals. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's really cool. And then you have I, a technical aspect. There's a technical aspect, which I think once you start to master that, the technical stuff becomes easier and a little bit less interesting to me over time. And, and now it's become much more of a, um, it's all personal. It all becomes very like, I'm, uh, oftentimes the director's confidant, you know, that, that oftentimes the cinematographer is the, uh, the director's like right-hand man or right-hand woman. So we, um, I enjoy that aspect of the job way more that the, the psychology of the job, the working with directors, producers, crew members. Um, I, I, and then also there's a huge element to just problem solving because nothing ever really goes right on a movie. So yeah. like 90% of the job is problem solving because like maybe the truck that you need all the equipment on is broken down a mile away and you only have, 
um, a little reflector bounce card to light the actor's face. Okay, well, that's not what we had planned today, but we got to make the best of it. Or, you know, in the scenario that I had recently, an actor's not coming out of his trailer because he's pissed off that he was called to set two hours too early and he's just been waiting around. Well, now he's going to make a point in showing us that, you know, that we can't mess with his time. So now he's going to make us wait. And we have a hundred extras on set and we've, uh, you know, we've put makeup on all their faces because they're supposed to be bleeding. Well, now the makeup, the blood effect is drying and that's not what we want because now it's changing <laughs> color. So now they don't really look beaten up and bloody. They just look like they've got like ice cream that dripped on their face or, or whatever. And it, it starts to like, everything just starts to unravel. And I feel like we're constantly just trying to keep it all together. And, uh, and to me, that's more interesting than I enjoy lighting and I enjoy the camera work stuff. But what's funny about that, and I, I learned on this previous movie that I was just working on, is that like the lights and the cameras and all the equipment we use, they just work. You just flip a switch and it works and you know what it does. You know what a 50 millimeter lens looks like when you put it on the camera and you point it at an actor. Like that doesn't change every day. And, I, and, and that gives me great confidence knowing that at least the equipment is working because... Um, because everything else is a total variable. Yeah. And um, and it's so unpredictable. And often people are like, well, would you like to be a director someday? And that, you get that question a lot. And I'm just Which like, we're going to get into. Well, we recently, can get into that. Yeah. I mean, we can jump into that if you want. Well, but no, not yet, but we'll, we'll get wait. there. My point, though, in saying that is, is that working with... <laughs> working with actors and, uh, and I've been really lucky to work with some really terrific actors. But I see that directors every day have this giant variable, which is the actor. And if the actor had a lousy breakfast that morning, or if maybe their car had gotten broken into last night, like you're going to get a wildly different performance than you would have had the person woken up on the right side of the bed. And, yeah. and I just don't know that I could deal with that stress every single day. Like I'm yeah. working with the director working with the producers, the other crew members, like that's enough for me. I'm, I'm right. good with those variables. <laughs> like, I don't know if I could handle any more actors, actors. Yeah. Um, that's a tough game. Well, it's funny you bring yeah. that up because uh, we'll get into kind of how Doug and I know each other. But one of the things we worked on together was Alex of Venice, directed by Chris Messina, our mutual friend. Uh, and uh, there was that one scene. So so I was uh, essentially Chris's eyes and ears on that film when he was in scenes because uh, he didn't have playback monitor so he wanted someone he trusted and we've known each other forever so really the scenes where he was in the scenes as an actor if you were on set that day you'd think I was directing you know and what there was that one scene where he comes and he does the um it, it was like the 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 breakup scene kind of and and you were shooting and you were down here and and he was coming in and the way he likes to work which is very specific was he would kind of roll it back and keep going and, and, and don't try. stop. Don't cut the don't camera. Cut the camera. Keep we rolling. do, yeah, we do 20 minute, minute takes. takes. Yeah. So as long point, as we had, he, what we would do is I would walk away with him and I'd kind of like, uh, try to like prep him. Like I try to just poke and prod at him for the things that I thought were necessary for the scene. And cause I've known him for a while, I could kind of stir him up a little bit and then we just let the camera go. And there was that one night, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Matt Ross was there as well. Yeah. And and Chris was going and you were shooting and I was watching and I was thinking, this is some of the best work I've seen him do. I've known him for like 20 years. I'm like, he is he is really on a roll. And I looked over and you and Matt Ross were like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to move on. <laughs> it was 
<laughs> and I had a panic attack, like, like, oh my God, am I seeing something here that that they're not seeing? And it was just so interesting as I was I was I was in there with him because we what had was, such a, Remind me, what was happening? He like, was why really- were we, You wanted he, to cut the cameras? I wanted to keep going. And, and I thought he was really getting it. But the way he works is he, you know, or at least at that time, the way he was working was he didn't mind if he had miles and miles of footage. He was trying to gotcha. dig for the performance. And I think you guys thought he was off the rails, like going in some tangential <laughs> direction, both you and Matt. And and I kind of got scared. Like, am I seeing something? We should say for the audience that Matt Ross is a, is an accomplished director in his own right. Matt, oh, yeah. Matt, Matt Ross directed uh, Captain Fantastic, which came out last year. He won Con, right? He won Con. Yeah. And um, Viggo Morrison was nominated for an Oscar for his performance. Yeah. And then he did 28 Hotel Rooms, you which guys is where did I met him yeah. with Chris Messina, right. which was a tiny little indie film that we shot. It was the first movie I ever shot in California. And we shot in a bunch of hotel rooms here. Yeah. That, yeah. And it's a great, I mean, incredible performances. Uh I'm uh, sure that neither neither one of us were wrong in that scenario. No, like, but it was interesting. I'm sure that like my back was probably breaking after 25 minutes of holding the camera and it, like exactly. Chris is like spinning in circles and, and it's, doing and whatever it, it's but doing. What's so funny is like you're you're looking through your you know your vantage point, whatever your role is on the set, and looking and and dealing with you know different actors and and different processes and all that. And it is like I'm just. Here, but I, I'm, what I want to do is I want to give you credit though, also, and give obviously give Chris credit. Um, because I think it's so easy to get wrapped up in just seeing through your own lens. And this might be a, a nice metaphor for all of us in, in life, which is like, you're so focused on just looking through your own lens in that very moment. You, you get this very like macro point of view that you forget why you're there. And if the reason you're there is, is not just to make a pretty looking image, uh, the DP's job is, you know, obviously to light the movie, make it look nice, but you're really there to capture something, to tell a story. And um, if if Chris needs to shoot for 25 minutes and, and keep doing different versions of that performance and try different things. And like, then it's my job is to be there to capture that. Yeah. And uh, you know, and, and likely maybe one of the lights that we needed to take to the ceiling had fallen down and, and maybe, yeah. and maybe like it was completely out of focus because one of our pieces of equipment had run out of a battery and like the focus thing right. wasn't working. Whatever it was, which is very possible that things break in the middle of a shot and you have to fix and you have to cut. And if you're not cutting and you don't have time to reset, then um then anyway, then, then for a cinematographer, you might say, hey, let's cut. But but in working with Chris and working with other actors that like to just do a lot of improv- improvisation, you should never cut and you should you should let them work through it. Um, but that's funny because I, totally- I lose track and I lose tra- and we all do. You know, we lose track of the big picture, which is like um, I, I was just and this is maybe tangential. Um, I was just working with a director. We were up in Oakland and. um he he's a first time feature filmmaker, but he's a um, an accomplished musician. His name is Boots Riley. He's uh, the front man for the Coup. He's been around for years. He's a a phenomenally talented musician, but also filmmaker. Uh-huh. And um, I think through his years of making music with other band members, he's he's kind of he has learned the art of collaboration. And um, and I got that instantly from him. Um, there are often times that in my job, I think that I know the right way to do something. And I think that not necessarily that there's a right and wrong way, but there's definitely certainly an easier way. And there's one way that works and I know that I can do it and it'll work quickly. And if you're dealing with uh, money and a schedule and, and budgetary issues, like you kind of just need to go and do the right thing as quickly as possible. Sometimes, not always. And, and in Boots's case, Boots would ask for something um, unique and different 
And that was what had excited me about his script. And that's why I was there. What's it called? Uh, it's called Sorry to Bother You. Okay. It's not out yet. It's not out. We okay. just finished shooting just last week. All right. Um, and I remember a few times being stressed out on set, thinking, oh, my God, we're never going to make our day. The producers are like looking at their watch. We're running out of money. Like we need to finish the day. And Boots is saying, hey, let's try this different thing, this new technique, this new angle, this new camera trick, whatever it is. And I'm panicking and I'm freaking out thinking, oh, my God, that's going to take so much longer. I don't know if it'll work. And then if you just stop for a second and you really remember why you're there and you trust the director and you, you, you think to yourself, my job isn't, is to make the days to make the schedule, but it's really to accomplish this guy's vision. And, and let's just try it and let's just see if it works. And um, I would say every time we tried it and it worked and it was great and it was brilliant and beautiful and way, way more interesting than anything I would have thought to have done in that moment. I mean that, and that's the brilliance of of collaboration, but that's also the brilliance of like stopping and taking stock of why you're in any situation, you know, like, why did you put yourself there? Like, what did you ultimately hope to get out of it? And, um, it's easy to get caught up, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the minutia of whatever it is that you're doing. But if you stop and you think about really what's my main objective, well, it's to tell a great story and it's to work for this great director and accomplish his vision. Then like, cool. Then you did it scary, but you did it. I mean, that's amazing. That's actually great relationship advice it's like we all get caught up in our own um kind of yeah. our own thing that we think we yeah. want and you and then you get into a headlock whether it's work or it's personal relationship it's marriage whatever it is and when you stop and go hold on okay what are we doing here you kind of can move forward and right. and like i'm sure that that is a uh a maturity that you ha- how old are you now i'm 33 I mean, you're I've so been shooting young. for 10 years. Yeah. I mean, I, but it took you. me a long time, but I also say that like, if I had shot this movie, the one that I just finished, um, or we could talk about room 104, which is a, the HBO show that's just yeah. come out. Like if I had shot those, those shows, those movies five, six, seven years ago, like there's probably a good chance I would have said something really stupid and offended someone, or I would have blown up or lost my temper or freaked out or panicked or just screwed up. And, and it's really just, doing this, it's the Malcolm Gladwell thing. It's 10,000 hours. It's just doing this enough times. You realize we're going to make our day. The movie will get finished. There's no reason to panic and freak out. Certainly no reason to lose your cool and lose your temper on anyone. You know, um, you just try and be a good, decent, nice person because at the end of the day, like having the experience that I've had now, I know that we're going to make the movie. Don't, don't lose it. You know, don't lose your cool. Right. That's kind of, and at the end of the day, people will come up to me and say like, oh, I don't know how you're able to stay so Zen and stay so chill on set when everything's going wrong. And like, well, I've just done this enough to know that like, eventually we're going to finish this thing. Like yeah. it's not the end of the world. Do you, do you meditate? Do you any, do any of that? Or are you just naturally, uh... I just listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> I don't listen. I don't meditate. Um, I don't have enough time. Cause our days yeah. are like 15 hour days. You, you are, you have a meditate. Well, first of all, I want to say, um, it's, it's so, you are so accomplished and you're 33. And when I met you, you were doing, I remember it was at, it was at, on Roscomer and you came over with the guys that did catfish and yeah. you guys were doing paranormal activity or you just ended it or you were in the middle yeah. of it, I think. And I was like, this guy is so young. That seems like a big franchise that you're doing. You were, how old were you doing that? That was like was seven years ago. Yeah. Was it seven? It years was ago? like five years ago. I can't remember. It was paranormal activity for 2010 or something. Yeah. So seven years ago, seven man. Years ago. So you were, so yeah, geez. you were 26 
And I remember thinking all of you were so young and you were, you know, uh, so, so what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is to hear your uh, lack of ego in this recent project and, and because I've worked with you and, and seen you operate. Um, and it's kind of what I found everybody that I've interviewed in their respective field and there's varied fields, but every the people that are really good at what they do, I find are there to serve. And that's what it sounds like you are. It's like the ego is moved aside. How can I serve the story? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I think the job of the cinematographer also is, is yeah, is to not to be noticed all that much. Like really great cinematography, you're supposed to be creating a world and a, and a feeling and a, and a mood for people, but you're not supposed to be saying, hey, look at me, look what I can do with a camera, look what I can do with a lighting. Um, now, there are obviously great examples that, that that's not the case. But in um, a lot of cinematographers talk about this is sort of like kind of our mantra, which is that like we're trying to not be noticed because if you start to notice the camera, then you're not going to be thinking about the film. You're not going to be engaging with the movie. You're now you're now you're thinking about the mechanics of how this movie is getting made and and why the camera is doing what it's doing. Well, now you're not paying attention to the actors and now you're not paying attention to the story. So we do try and, and, and kind of be seamlessly unknown and unseen. Um, which is tough because it's like, how do you put your stamp on your work? How right. do you get noticed as a cinematographer if you're not? If you're well, this is a, to be the, you know the same goes for actors. By the way, uh, this is an endless conversation I have with Chris about. You know, some of our you look at someone like Gene Hackman. Now he is someone that has gotten the the recognition, but you know, or Tommy Lee Jones, guys like that. They are so subtle. They convey so much with so little. Those are my favorite kinds of actors that can that almost. Y- y- it's like uh, they remove themselves in service of the story, but to me, it's more authentic. And it's not like me, 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 and you know, you know, kind of um, pulling focus. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times the awards will go to you know the most kind of outwardly kind of boisterous performance, and sometimes those quiet performances are not picked up, but. You make a choice of how you want to approach it. And hopefully over time, and it's not, you know, you're doing extremely well. People do recognize that kind of lack of ego that you have and service of the project. And that's why you've been asked to be a part of some really amazing projects in your young years. And, you know, I I was just available. (laughs) No, sometimes you have to get lucky, though. Yeah, I, th- I was totally. thinking about that this well, morning. Ta- well, I was like, yeah. what are we going to talk about? I was like, well, we might talk about like, how is it that you get to work so much at such a young age on in a, on a film shoot where everyone might be a whole lot older than you? And and really, sometimes you just have to get lucky. Like I, I've um, I've been in the situation where they had a cinematographer lined up ready to shoot the movie. And then a few weeks or a month before that DP drops out and there's a mad dash and a scramble and you know, you're just lucky to be available and to get that call and to get hired. So, and then that leads to five more years of work, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then well, that, that's the thing. And Luck that work is... you can, yeah, maybe some of that work is earned, but uh, you know, don't forget that you just, you got lucky along the way. And I think that's like, it's, that also keeps me a little bit egoless, right? Yeah. Is Gratitude. You got to remember to be, yeah, grateful and to stay humble because like, I, I don't feel like I'm any more special than any other guy. Um, there, 
there are certainly a lot of people out there that I think that are really, really talented and, and do create beautiful work and that have just not had the the lucky breaks that I've had along the way. And certainly I haven't had some of the lucky breaks of, of the guys that I worship in Hollywood as well, yeah. you know, and I'm still, I still feel like I'm waiting for my lucky break. And, and in reality, after doing this for, for a little while and thinking about the, the scope and longevity of one's career as a cinematographer, or really as anyone uh, in any profession, um, there are going to be a few people who hit it big, really young and are like worshiped by everyone else. Right. But for most of us, I think it's going to be a long, slow burn. And that's great. You're lucky if that's the case, if right. you get to just keep working and practicing your craft and growing and evolving. And, um, and I'm, I, I, at one point, I think very early on in my career, I thought that I was, I wanted to be that guy who exploded onto the scene at 25 and was shooting giant, big, you know, Marvel movies and Spider-Man movies and all these. And then I realized like, well, those aren't really the movies that I want to shoot. And I don't necessarily really need to have that career because I'm getting to do all these other interesting small little movies and, and I'm getting to tell stories and, um, and I'm growing and I'm learning and that's good enough for me. It's gratitude, man. I think it's gratitude for where you are and it's, it's patience. That's something I've been thinking about because I've had the same thing where I've had this like slow burn of it never seemed to come easy for me. And yet I'm way luckier than a lot of people out there that are attempting to be actors or have attempted and are mm-hmm. not yeah. anymore. I'm, I'm extremely lucky the same way you're saying. It's like, you know, you got lucky, man. You happen to be the right guy at the right time for this yes. particular thing. When someone like, you know, everything you get as an actor yeah. was offered out to like 10 guys <laughs> yeah, a ton of other you, people, and they just That's weren't true. available. And then you yeah. went in and you got lucky. Yeah. You know? uh, that being said, over time, you hope that your work ethic and your talent will shine through and it will add up to something. You have but, to be good. You have to be nice, but you have to be lucky too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's, uh, I, I love the way, well, okay, let me, let me segue into this. So I've been working with Duplass, as you know, Mark yeah. Duplass, if any of you are listening, uh, the Duplass brothers, Mark and Jay, uh, big on the indie scene. They started, one of their earlier films was Puffy Chair. Then they did a, a bigger budget, Jeff, who lives at home with Jason Siegel. And they, they've kind of uh, developed their own voice and he's been, I mean, I, I think part of the reason, like in the cosmic sense that I got this job was just to hang with Duplass and be influenced by his producerial views of the world and creating your own content and everything. He's been great. But I asked him, I forgot the connection of you and Room 104. And I saw one of your posts on Instagram about it. And I was like, oh, I saw him the next day. And I was like, I said, oh, Doug Emmett, you know, I, I, I know Doug. And he's like, oh, he's great. What and have I, you been working with him on? Oh, Goliath oh, on Goliath. Amazon. Okay, cool. So, um, so I, he goes, oh, Doug's great. And he goes, he goes, yeah, you know how I got him? He's like, he directed an episode. I said, oh, that's great for Doug. Because I don't know. Have you directed besides that? I have never directed anything. Well, which was, which was so <laughs> I went to, for- I'll tell you a quick little silly story. I went to film school. It was at NYU undergrad. I graduated in 06. So... Uh, we were all supposed to direct something uh, to get credit for the class that we were. It was a junior year. What was it called? Color Sync. And uh, I had no interest in directing, but I knew I was going to have to spend some money on a project and I, I, out of my own bank account. And I was going to have to direct something and pass it in and get credit for it. And uh, I went to my friend Andrew and I said, hey, man, I don't want to direct but I really want to keep shooting. Like, 
do you want to direct this for me and I'll shoot it? And like, you know, here's a, here's a thousand bucks. And we ended up <laughs> going like, off yeah. and making a music video together. And it was terrific. But that was, that was really my last shot at directing. <laughs> so I, I didn't do it then. And I haven't done it in, ever. Yeah. How was so, it? Well, let me just tell how he, so sweet. he was like, he's like, yeah, I figured, you know, he's like, I couldn't, I couldn't pay him his quote. Cause he's like, he's too expensive for me now. And this is, this is, which is really cool of, you know, he's saying this for you. You're working on HBO. I mean, it doesn't get any better. And he's going, I, I, I can't, you know, it's like he has you. He's lucky enough to get you as the cinematographer and you get an opportunity to go direct an episode, which I'm super yeah, interested. Mutually beneficial. It's mutually yeah. beneficial. Yeah, that's great. And, and it's, and it's, how was that experience? So it wasn't, so that's the thing is you would think maybe you'd be nervous stepping into the director's shoes and trying something different. But for me, it doesn't feel a whole lot different. Um, I do a little bit of directing on set every day, you know, whether I'm directing my crew or helping an actor with blocking or explaining where the camera's going to move and, and how we're photographing the scene. And, you know, I, I help actors try and figure out, well, where to stand and how to stand and how to catch light on their face, maybe, or um, just offering encouragement. If I see an actor might be having a hard time with something that I feel comfortable, it depends on the director I'm working with, but I feel comfortable saying, hey man, that last take was great. You know, I think you're doing a really nice job. I keep it up or, or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. So there's definitely some element of, of communication and directing. Um, then in this case, working on Room 104, since I had been the cinematographer on all the other episodes, I was very comfortable on the set. I knew everybody. Um, I, I knew how we were photographing the show. I knew we didn't have a lot of time to shoot 30 pages of content which is a lot. Yeah. Uh, we had two cameras to shoot. We use them constantly. Um, I didn't feel like I was walking onto a set where I didn't know anyone. I would have felt really insecure if um, I had just been a TV gun for hire. You know, I roll up and there's a, a cinematographer a that I've never met before who does his own or her own thing. And I would have been really nervous. So I was on, you know, so I was on set directing um, and, and, uh, I remember at one point I said, oh, well, wouldn't it be great just to lay down 20 feet of dolly track and do this dolly move and we'll push the camera here and it'll be this wide shot that pushes into a close up. It'll be great. I said, let me just go ask the director and I'll be right back. Did you really? <laughs> and the crew's looking at me like I was an insane person. And I got about halfway out the door and I turned around <laughs> and they're still staring at me, waiting for me to realize that, yeah, I was didn't have to ask anyone. Did you really do that? Yeah, I did. And it was weird. I was. That is. But then incredible. there was. A, then, I, and then I started to understand the the. Um, the insecurity of directors and the insecurity of a lot of people on set when they're the ultimate decision maker, then I was like, oh man, well, I hope this is the right call. Yeah. Because as a DP, I thought it was a great idea. But as a director, I was really nervous. Well, what if it doesn't work? And there's no one there to tell me, yeah, no, let's do it. It's a great idea. Let's do it. Um, so yeah. oftentimes I feel, I feel as a cinematographer, I'm the confidant for the director, you know, just trying to encourage them saying, no, no, it's okay. This is a really good idea. Or if you, you know, if you've done five takes and the, and the producers and the AD are saying, you got to move on, we got to move on. We got more to shoot. And the, and the director's feeling, like, Oh, well, maybe I need to do one more take. I, I feel confident enough that I can walk up to a director and say, Hey, you know what? That was a really good, the last two takes were really fantastic. I think you have it. Like, don't worry, let's move on. Right. It's okay. Right. And I think sometimes a director just needs to hear that. Yeah. And, um, how, what was the or, name of your episode, by the way? Uh, it's called the internet. The internet, and that's on Room 104 on HBO. Yeah, I think it comes out um, at the end of August. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, so then we uh, should definitely yeah. 
release this bad boy before then. So people can go, who, who directed that? <laughs> uh, how was it? Like, do you want to do was it an, again? Or, or are you kind of like, okay, I'm cool. I would like love, dip my toe in the pool. I would I'm, love to direct again um, on that show. Mark and I are talking about doing a second season together. So that's exciting for me. Um, I would definitely love to direct again. I don't know that I would, I don't know that I want to go off and direct a feature film. It, it's my passion really is, is honing my craft and getting better at what I really do. So it might be further down the road Maybe or not even. If there's a story that I'm really, really passionate about telling, but yeah. right now I haven't found that I'm, that I'm so interested in telling my own story. The, the thing of directing is it's, it, that's a tough gig. You get stuck on a project for two or three years. I have a short attention span. So I, I come in, I prep a movie for five weeks. I shoot for six weeks. I'm done. Yeah. Well, how was it then being in post with this episode? Because you're normally on to the next episode, but this one you're in post and you're making decisions Um, editorially. We had a really great editor who had done a really solid cut. When I had come in, I'd already seen something that was cut. Maybe it was 36 minutes or 34 minutes. I had to come down to 29. So we made some decisions. Mark really was helpful in guiding that process as well. Um, we, we made some edits and I, I don't think I was there a whole lot, you yeah. know, it was really Did you fun. like that aspect of it? Cause I love, I enjoyed room. it. Yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. It was fun to make those decisions. It's hard to cut out great, funny jokes. It's hard to cut out, um, yeah. slow, beautiful camera moves well, that, you- that, you know, bring you into the story. But ultimately when you're being told you only have 29 minutes and you have to cut six minutes, like that's a big chunk. That's a huge percentage of the show. So, um, you know, you have to, you have to kill your darlings. You yeah. Know, you have I mean, to do you remember decisions. that on Alex of Venice? I don't know if you remember Don Johnson, who's excellent in this film, Alex of Venice that we were talking about before. Uh, great performance. And then one day he had like a moment where he fell to the floor and he was crying and we were all I had goosebumps on my arms yeah. watching it and that ended up not being in the film and I mean it was in the film at one point it was out it was back in and ultimately it wasn't serving the story as a whole and that's hard for that's a director hard. to make that yeah. call and then also to have to go tell that actor who showed up and brought it but you are hoping that they have faith that you have their best interest at heart and the story's best interest at heart. And they may lose a moment that was incredible on the day, but it, you know, for whatever reason in the arc of the whole story, it's going to detract in your opinion, as opposed to add to the story. I also have a theory that, and that's true. Um, I have a theory. Usually I apply it on set, which is that, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be great to, do this shot, you know, whatever it might be, you know, like, I mean, I could give you a million examples of, of things that we ended up never shooting because either it was too expensive or because we had just run out of time. And, and I always feel like, well, the audience doesn't know the difference. Like they didn't know that we had talked about this great shot. They don't know what they're missing. Yeah. Um, and which is true. You totally. know, so some, some of those great ideas just exist in our minds or they exist on the cutting room floor, but ultimately like the audience doesn't know so what they don't know doesn't hurt them i guess you know it's also as an actor you said the same thing where you go you know you can have all the prep and all the ideas of what you're going to do you get there you shoot and like you were saying all these external things happen on the day and you're losing your light and whatever happens the end of the day what everybody has to know is what you got that's it 
for better or for worse. That's now the performance. You know, you have multiple takes of it, but they, that's the performance. And so for you to cry over spilled milk and talk about what you didn't get or you could have done this, could you didn't do it. So move on now yeah. and build from there. And that's what you have to Which embrace. is also why you have to bring your A game every moment of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can't pout and um, throw in the towel because you still have a few more hours left in the day. Like that stuff has to look great too. You yeah. Know, that has to work. The, yeah. Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about, uh, you grew up in Massachusetts. You were, did you know at a young age that you went to NYU undergrad for film school? Yeah. Um, did you, how my, early on did you think you well, wanted to do Well, my mom handed me a, 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 an SLR camera for, um, for those that grew up without film. Um, you know, the, an SLR camera is similar to like a Canon 5D, uh, same mechanics, except it shot film instead of on a computer chip how old were you i was seven seven my dad had had a hernia or herniated disc couldn't lift the water bottle into the uh like the poland spring water uh what's it the dispenser water dispenser yeah yeah Yeah. and and my mom was like well you know like you're gonna have to take on some extra chores so you're gonna be in charge of the water bottles and and doing all these other things but at the end of it you're gonna get a camera out of it and that was really cool she had had a a bunch of old canon and zeiss lenses she a photographer she had traveled um, extensively in her youth and had shot some beautiful images all over the world. Just personally, not Just professionally. Personally. And, um, and she really inspired me to, to do photography. She taught me how lenses worked and how F-stops worked and how to expose film. And um, From that young of an age. So at a young age, I was shooting stills. And then um, we had an old beta video camera, the Sony beta, which was a, is a long dead system. I think VHS beat out the beta system. But we had a yeah handheld camera, so I used to shoot videos with my brother and, and my the neighborhood kids, and uh, that turned into um, working in, in in high school. I had this really great teacher, Carol Wall, who encouraged me to make films in lieu of actually writing reports because she knew that I was going to put way more effort into a film into a film than into like an essay. Um, and we started a TV program and a TV show in the high school. We had a local access TV channel that we could upload our videos to. Um, so yeah. So I, what about I, sports? Did you play sports? Or I, no? I did. I, I played on a, uh, I was a captain of a losing tennis team <laughs> for a few years. Um, so, but you were making these, see, I'm so jealous of people. Like I've had a, a few of the people that I've interviewed. It's the same thing where they had this, um, they, they were creating things at a young age. And, um, I, I guess I was, but I never, I never really, I came to it so late, yeah. but it, you know, I, you're making I was me think the, of Spielberg, like like they Spielberg with the, the, the story with the train crash yeah. and how yeah. he filmed it and was like, Oh, I can have this train crash forever if I film it. Uh, one of these days I'll show you my NYU application video, which is just wildly embarrassing. But I shot myself on green screen and I, I duplicated myself a bunch of times and I introduced other versions of Doug as the cinematographer and as the editor and as the uh, production designer. And I was just wearing like these baggy gap pants <laughs> and baggy everything. Yeah, this is like... Was this this is 2002. Oh, 2000. Oh, my God. Oh, man. God, it's like terrible haircut. Um, super nerdy. But but every, so we created this class, though, and everyone loved it, though, because they would get these passes where they could leave the school campus to go off and shoot whatever they wanted. So 
So I, not because it was cool to shoot video, but because it was fun to go leave school, people <laughs> signed up for this TV class and it was great. It was a success. And, Isn't it cool, man? You know, yeah. I mean, and you said before we sat down, you know, uh, we were kind of talking about the premise of the, uh, of the podcast. I don't even know if you know, 10,000 knows is the name of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and Doug was saying something like, well, you know, I was telling him about some of the other interviews and he's saying, well, I feel like, you know, I don't know, is it going to be interesting? I've had kind of a, a charmed life in a lot of ways. And I feel I relate to that. I feel like I've struggled in a lot of ways, but I'm very lucky in the grand scheme of things. But um, one of the things where I feel I was lucky too, and, and you're talking about it, and a lot of people I know that had these opportunities, there's always some kind of mentor. And that that teacher who maybe spearheaded that class, I, we had like an O'Neill class. You know, I didn't know I was going to be an actor until far into college. But I remember taking, it was an English class. It was an elective in high school. Who has an O'Neill class? I mean, yeah. how lucky was that? This guy, it's Randy Harris, was really yeah. into Eugene O'Neill. And I remember the first time I heard Long Day's Journey Into Night, we read it in a classroom. I had no clue that I wanted to be an actor, but I remember being exposed to this writing and thinking, wow, they really captured this writer, Eugene O'Neill, who I don't know, really captured the family dynamic. And he went around to each individual character and gives their point of view at different points in the play. Without knowing it, in some way, that's responsible for my eventual decision yeah. to be an actor. I didn't, I, I'm not even sure I've crystallized that till this very moment. But I think it's really important to acknowledge teachers and what kind of impact they have on yeah. students. My mom's a teacher. My mom's it's a, huge. you know, an ex, uh, you know, she's a retired special ed teacher, but yeah. she gets, and it's cool. It's really important. She'll get like on Facebook, people that she taught 30 years ago will reach out and say, hey, you know, thank you for being patient with me. And it's just a reminder of all of us, whatever job we're doing that, you know, you are having an effect on people. So kind of, you know, don't take yourself seriously, but take the the job or the service seriously, because that's going to be like a ripple in the pond that's going to affect people. Like for you, you know, you're making things that are seen by millions of people. Who knows who you're affecting or who you've affected already just by being good at your job? I worked on a, on a TV show that I'm really quite proud of called Faking It. It was uh, an MTV show, and it was uh, largely about gay youth. And being gay in today's day and age in, in high school. Huh. And that show, I think I'm more proud of the work on that show, not because the cinematography is amazing or, or all that interesting or anything like that, but, but because that actually has a real um, tangible impact on kids' lives. And we're changing through that show. They, they canceled the show after a few seasons, but it was a really wonderful thing, like, the writers and the showrunners would get these emails and letters from kids saying, like, you saved my life. Oh. People, like, they actually saved lives with this TV show. That's amazing. I've never even heard of it. People who felt... That's amazing. That they could finally come out to their families and to their friends because there were other kids on TV now doing the same, you know, living the same life that they were living. Um, that's super important. You know, that's... So I think that now, and this is sort of... I look at, take stock in my career and think about where I want to go. And I just want to tell stories now and, and make movies that um, are part of the, the conversation, you know, about progressing our society and about um, um, keeping it real with people, you know, and, and, and being socially progressive. Like, I don't really want to make 
dumb misogynist comedies anymore. I, I may have made a few back in the day. I don't want to make um, um, anything that's going to make people feel bad about themselves or about anyone else. Like, I think yeah. it's really important, especially in in our world, obviously in light of all the politics of, of, of our of our country, that's really important that we be part of a, a conversation that helps advance people, right? And, and yeah. I think that's, that if we can all have a little impact in what we do in day to day, like that's the kind of impact that I'd like to keep having. Yeah. Also, I think we're talking about teachers and like, it's important to pay it forward. You know, like I, I have a, a few people that I like, I wouldn't say I'm a mentor to, but I'm happy to to email, correspond, pick up the phone, go off and, and, and go like shoot together, you know, I still shoot stills for fun. And, uh, that's really important too, right. That you, that you pay that forward. So, yeah. um, I mean, this, you know, living in Hollywood is fun and it, it I guess it could be glamorous at times. Right. And I mean, yeah. sure. We can get caught up in all that though. I never think of my, I mean, maybe yours is, I no, don't you think have of kids. mine. Your life is not glamorous yeah. anymore. I don't think. Mine is very glamorous. <laughs> it's very glamorous. Yeah, you're more glamorous than I am. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm like the last thing I think of my life is glamorous. No, I like my life. I, you know, it's it's so funny, the image that, that people would have. Of I think the problem is people in, in Hollywood is there's a lot of self-importance. Yeah. Right? You see that. We all see that. There's a lot of self-importance. Like, let's just, let's just get beyond that. Yeah. It's just not necessary. Yeah. Well, that's your evolution. It sounds like as an artist is, you know, uh, from before when you're talking about removing your ego and serving the story and now talking about kind of, I mean, and, and, and again, being lucky to be in the position to say, make a choice about, I'm going to tell these kinds of stories and not those kinds of stories. And that's a fortunate position, you know, where other people may go, well, I got to go shoot this thing because I need to pay my rent or Well, the trick is to have really low overhead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you have freedom and you've been able to that develop helps. a voice while uh, subsisting at, a, at a, mm-hmm. a, a lower level. I tell actors that all the time. I mean, that's, you know, that's how I, my first seven years, I paid 500 bucks a month to live yeah. in Manhattan, you know? And like walk up with built a wall, built a loft, all that kind of stuff. It's like, but it allows you to be the artist you want to be. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we could talk forever, but <laughs> I, I don't want to you know, keep boring people. I, you're not boring at all. This <laughs> is. I, I feel like you've I'll given us so you. many gems to think about, and um, anything where where people could uh, find you or follow you or any of that. Instagram. Yeah. I mean, people can follow me on Instagram, but it's a really difficult name to remember. Now I kind of regret that I did it. <laughs> I should have just used my name. I have a little bit of the same really idea, like hard. at Maddie Dell. And someone's like, Hey man, you should have just done at Matthew Del Negro across all platforms. And then I, I was like about to do it and Google something. They're like, before you change your handle, just know that like you lose you all lose those people. Everyone. That are the, yeah. yeah so now it's too to, late. Well, yours is, what is it? Mine hey is, kiddo, mine life's is, not that bad. Hey kiddo, life's not that bad. That's, that's easy. Such hey kiddo, weird. life's not that bad. Yeah. H-E-Y-K-I-D-D-O-L-I-F-E. S N O T B A D. Is that right? That was N O T T H A T. Yeah, I think I lost track. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, kiddo. That was something my dad said to to me as a kid uh, on a family video and it just stuck. I don't know. 
That's actually, I signed up for Instagram like years ago. I didn't yeah. know that I was going to have to like have followers someday and that that would help me. And that's know. the main place to see you though. Hey kiddo, yes. life's not that bad. But let's just we're, we're going to see the TV end, show. Go watch the TV show on room HBO. 104 room 104 on HBO. Yeah. His particular episode is The Internet. It's coming out the end of August of 2017. If you're listening to this in 20 20- 35 <laughs> go back and binge it if they still have that <laughs> um thank you for this being way. here thanks, thanks a lot for, for having me time. this is fun All thanks right. a lot manny yeah thank you